Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for coming back to the pod. If this is your first time here, thank you for checking it out. This is episode three in the series that we're doing calling, uh, that I'm calling Crucifying Elephants and Donkeys, uh, our conversation about theology and politics. And this is part two of um, an episode, a longer conversation that I wanted to have, uh, particularly about MAGA, Make America Great Again, as a theological statement, MAGA as theology. And the trouble that I see as Christians with making such a statement in a way that seems to be in in many evangelical circles um, endorsed by God in their view. And so if you haven't listened to part one, just the, the previous episode to this, uh, make sure you do that first because we have a, have a little bit of a broader conversation there about some terms, some ideas, um, the idea of civil religion, of nationalism, of uh, empire, and how religious language is used to serve the purposes of empire and how America has engaged in that. And we'll overlap a little bit on some of those themes here today, but I want to talk about how I think those kind of theological ideas and concepts have been largely employed by evangelicals and the Trump administration and um, how, how all of that is kind of encapsulated in MAGA, Make America Great Again, in that little four-word slogan. So in the, the previous episode, I ended with us looking at a quote from JFK that I think was just a glaring display of religious na- nationalism and American imperial religion uh, using Christian language and scripture in just a horribly idolatrous way in order to serve American purposes. In that, well, what, what would have been speech, it was uh, an excerpt from the speech that JFK was going to give on the day that he was assassinated. Um, it, the speech at large was uh, a lot about the, the war that we were in and trying to rally the country, both about what we were doing abroad and at home, and how he called America the Savior, and he you know, pulled scriptures from the Psalms and from Jesus's birth narrative and how we had this divine destiny and all of that kind of stuff. And it was just a a glaring example of hopefully that you saw that that's kind of out of bounds. I want to essentially make the argument here today that I think that same temptation is the theological crisis that's facing much of the evangelical church in America today and specifically related to Trump and the Republican Party. Um, And I think all of that, again, is kind of encapsulated in the slogan MAGA. And I want to look at how I see many evangelicals today falling into that same temptation and really trading the gospel, if I just want to say it plainly, trading the truth of the gospel for religious nationalism in order to serve their own purposes. And if this wasn't clear, maybe it wasn't in my in the previous episode, the reason I'm talking about this is because these are my people, right? This is my own spiritual family. These are people that I know and follow and have looked up to and respected and read and listened to. These are my brothers and sisters. And so my concern here is, is that many of the people in my own spiritual family, in my own tribe, so to speak, are 
I'm just going to be honest, clearly using idolatrous language and theological hermeneutics and interpretations for political purposes. And it's really alarming to me. It's really, really unsettling to me. And almost a day doesn't go by that I don't see something online that really just troubles me. I just saw something about an hour ago um, from a church in, in Michigan that was holding a Evangelicals for Trump rally in a church, and they're singing worship songs, praising worship songs to Jesus, and the, the screen says, Faith in America. I thought we had faith in Jesus, not faith in America. Right? And it's all of these kinds of things that I see all the time that are, are troubling to me because, again, these are largely kind of my own people. So with all that introduction, let, let's, let's look at, I think, the temptation or the, the trouble of the hour related specifically to Trump. First, let's, let's connect a little bit to what we said in the last episode, and that is I think that maybe the foundation of American civil religion is the way that Americans really from our inception have understood America to be a kind of biblical Israel. And so we talked about this again last time, but when U.S. settlers wanted to take over land, this is the hermeneutic they used. They read America as a kind of Israel, this land as a kind of promised land, Native Americans as a kind of Canaanites that we were to drive out and all of this kind of stuff. Well, that same hermeneutic is being applied in the era of Trump. And I think maybe the most popular example of this, and this is the one that I'll, I'll kind of hone in on here, is this idea that Trump is a kind of King Cyrus. So King Cyrus was a Persian king uh, who conquered Babylon and then let Israel go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city. And Trump is pictured as this kind of non-believer, which is ironic because the same people who want to call Trump Cyrus also want to claim that he's an, he's a believer himself, at least many of them, so it is an inconsistency. But, but he's seen as a, a non-believer, or some will get around it by saying that he's a political outsider, just like Cyrus was an outsider. Again, you can already see the the loosey-goosey hermeneutics that are being used here. But Trump is pictured as this non-believer, this political outsider, like King Cyrus. And he, like King Cyrus, is being used by God and was raised up by God to accomplish God's purposes for the people of God. And again, there's, this is riddled with errors, and the, the text that is often cited uh, is Isaiah 45, really the end of 44 and then into 45, where in kind of Isaiah's uh, prophetic work, he's talking about, um, he's prophesying about a man named Cyrus who God is going to raise up, who does not know him, who's going to be anointed by God as a shepherd of God to uh, bring Israel back from captivity. And he's telling them now so that when it happens, they can all know that this is the this is the work of God, right? And so, Isaiah, if you want to go read it, it's the end of Isaiah forty four into to forty five, the first ten verses or something like that, right? But there are numerous numerous issues with seeing Trump as a kind of Cyrus. First, 
it completely ignores. And I, and I think, by the way, I could be wrong in this, but I think this originates this idea. I tried to do some internet digging, and boy, that led me down a weird YouTube hole a couple of nights ago. Um, but I think this originated this idea of Trump as Osiris with a, a man named Lance Wallnow. He wrote a book called God's Chaos Candidate. And he, I've heard, I heard him tell the story a few times, and he actually published this book uh, before Trump was even elected. I, I, I think he's the one who kind of got it started. Lance Wallnow is famous for this idea that there are seven mountains or spheres in society. There's um, places, realms of influence, you could say. So there's education and the family and the church and politics and business and media. And I, I think I'm, I think I'm missing one, but, and it's essentially a dominion theology that we're supposed to infiltrate these seven mountains and take over these seven mountains for God and establish right, righteousness and all this kind of stuff. So that's Lance one, I think he's the one who came up with this. I could be wrong. He's he's certainly one of the large proponents of it, one of the large voices uh, driving it, but I, I think he's the one. He claims to be, I'll put it that way. He claims to be the one that originated it. Whether he was actually the first one, I, I, don't, I don't know. But first, so reading Trump as a kind of um, Cyrus out of Isaiah 44 and 45 completely ignores the context of that passage, both historically and scripturally and grammatically and theologically and basically every every other way. When you read the entire prophecy in the larger context, it's clear that the point here is is for God is that he is showing Israel, who's in going to be in captivity, that he is showing Israel his sovereignty, his reign, his power, his rule over other gods and other kingdoms. The point of the passage is actually to emphasize the sovereignty and the rule and the reign of God, to emphasize the kingdom of God. You could say it that way. And he's going to accomplish his purpose no matter what, and nothing is going to stand against it, and he can do it any way he wants, even through a pagan king. So this is just simply a sign of something that's much larger uh for God and the purposes of God, and that is to establish his rule and reign. And if we keep reading then through Isaiah, that reign we find out goes to all of the nations, and that reign goes to all of the earth, right? And so this is this is not just about Israel. This is about God continuing to establish his reign and rule over the nations of the earth. And it completely, so reading Trump and making America great again as a kind of type of this completely ignores all of that context. And it leads us back to the same basic hermeneutical problem of reading America as a modern day Israel. So to see Trump as a kind of Cyrus is to say that America, if we want to be consistent here, that America is Israel or is a, is a kind of Israel. And that we've been sold into some kind of exile or that we've been separated from God. And if you ask people who espouse this or if you listen to people who espouse this, usually what they mean by that is that that represents the liberal Democrats who have taken over our country and taken it away from God and taken prayer out of schools and taken the Ten Commandments out of courthouses and undone American fabric and society. And so we get really right into uh, the idea of 
culture wars and taking America back for God and and politics being the way in which we can do that. In fact, it's funny, I was just watching something a little bit earlier, watching a little bit of news, and uh, saw this quote from uh, it was, Amy Barrett, I think is her name. She's the presumptive Supreme Court nominee that, that Trump will name or attempt to name in, in, to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And this news program was had this quote from uh, Judge Barrett that said, politics is a, a means to an end, and that end is the kingdom of God. Right. So she's playing the, the same game. For her, politics is the way that we get the kingdom of God. And my argument here in this whole, whole entire thing is to say, no, absolutely not. Politics is not the way that we get the kingdom of God. Not at least the politics of America, not the politics of democracy, not the politics of the Supreme Court and Congress and the White House. That is not how we get to the kingdom of God. But I digress. <laughs> so in this scheme... If you're going to be honest and consistent, Trump is portrayed as a kind of savior for America. There's just no way around it. If you're going to actually take what the passage says seriously and apply it to Trump and America to Israel, Trump becomes the savior of America. And sure, you can say, well, yeah, but God is the one using Trump. God is the one who's raising up Trump. And so therefore, it's God that's saving America. But no, no, no. If you're going to be consistent, really, Trump is the one who's at least being the instrument used to save America. And so Trump is, and, and that's why you have to vote for Trump. You have to get behind Trump because to get behind Trump is to get behind God. That's, and therein lies the problem, is you have now aligned God with one particular party, with one particular candidate, with one particular scheme, and you have to take all of that with you. And this is why, um, why many evangelicals have thrown really their stance of morality and ethics out the window in order to support Trump, because once you believe that God has anointed Trump, and once you believe that God is on the side of Trump and that God is being used by Trump, then you have to, by necessity, ignore all of the things that you would normally, you know, have issues with because you can't, you don't want to stand against God. You don't want to be on the wrong side of God. And if you're on the wrong side of Trump, the argument is that you're on the wrong side of God. But to say all of that is idolatry, it's just plainly idolatry. There's no other way to say it, right? Cyrus is called the shepherd. He's called God's anointed, which literally translate to Messiah. And if you're going to say that Trump is God's shepherd, that Trump is God's anointed, you are making a messianic claim on Trump. But we already have a shepherd. We already have a Messiah. His name is Jesus. And one of the disastrous effects of this kind of reading is that it completely ignores, and that would be the maybe the nice way to put it, the maybe sharper way to put it is that it just overtly obliterates and destroys and, and does so on purpose. Christ's love for the nations and replaces it with some special love and affection and election for America. But listen, Christ loves the nations. He has plans for the nations. And right now, currently, at this moment, that you are listening to this, Jesus is sitting over, sitting on his throne over the nations. And that Jesus has, and I'm going to say this unambiguously, 
Jesus has no interest in making America great, if by great we mean rich, prosperous, comfortable, powerful, economically strong, all of the things that we typically mean when we say great. And this is probably now worth pointing out. The slogan, Make America Great Again, it begs the question, if we're going to use that in a Christian sense, which is how this is ultimately being employed by many evangelicals, because Trump is Cyrus, and he's the one who's going to bring America back to God, and he's going to overthrow the evil liberal progressives, which, by the way, I'm not a liberal progressive, okay? So just because I know some listeners might just assume that that's where I'm coming from. That's, that's not me at all. I actually don't know if I've ever, I don't think I've ever voted for a Democrat in a, any type, kind of major election. Okay, but it begs the question, if we're thinking about this in a Christian sense, in a theological sense, in the way that the specific way that this is being employed that, that we're talking about here, it begs the question, when was America great in a truly Christian sense? Or is it the 80s? When Reagan launched the great war on drugs that incarcerated a, a generation of young black men unfairly? In the 50s and 60s when Jim Crow was still in full swing and the government was redlining black families out of particular neighborhoods and refusing them home ownership? When sexual immorality began to run rampant and women were treated like second-class citizens in much of the public square? Was that when America was great in a Christian sense? Do we need to go back a few more decades and generations when we still have Jim Crow? We have the lynching of black bodies and families would go out and, and watch black men and women hang from trees and be set on fire. And then they would take their picture and send that picture as postcards and, and postage stamps. That really happened, by the way, in America. And there was all kinds of unjust economic practices, the waging of two world wars, women being held, withheld particular rights. Is that when America was great in a truly Christian sense? Do we need to go back to the Civil War during slavery when black men and women were considered three-fifths of a person? My, my point here is not to trash America. It's to point out that the slogan, Make America Great Again, when it's employed in a religious sense, when it's employed in a Christian sense, in a, a way of Christian nationalism, and it's employed to serve a particular interest for a particular group of people, mainly white evangelicals, and we use all kinds of religious language to employ it and to, to cover up our past sins, and to do so for the, the gain of political power in the present moment and in the future. When, when we do that, it's, it's idolatrous. It's terrible. It keeps us from actually seeing the kingdom of God. Because in order to see the kingdom of God, we have to repent. We have to own the things that we have done. And we have to seek to make them right the Jesus way through mercy and forgiveness and laying down our lives for other people through seeking the betterment of society, not by going top-down, but by coming bottom-up. Listen, America doesn't need Cyrus. We already have Jesus. I mean, this is the ironic thing. is We're all excited about, quote-unquote, Cyrus, but we already have Jesus. And we don't need a pagan shepherd. We already have the good shepherd. 
And we don't need an anointed president. We have the anointed one. And we don't need a political Messiah. We already have the crucified and risen and ascended Christ. The other massive issue here I want to highlight, and there are honestly many more that I could talk about, is how this reading of Trump as a kind of Cyrus that is endorsed by God and backed by God, and that the political things that he's doing are the way in which God is going to somehow bring America back to him. And that this is how God is at work. To see Trump as this agent of God's salvific work is to say, essentially, that God's kingdom operates just like all of the other kingdoms of the world. And sadly, and this I think is even honestly a a deeper issue in some sense, but sadly, I, I think that many of us, that we often believe that Jesus is just like any other kind of worldly Lord. He's just the more powerful and cosmic one who's on our side. Right? That he's, he's just like every other king. He's just the king that can beat up all the other ones. But they all operate the same. He just has the most power. But he's really no different than the rest of them when push comes to shove. That he, just like everyone else, rules from the top down by force and even sometimes by violent means in order to bend the will of people towards him and to break those who, who, who resist him. And this kind of understanding of God's rule, and to get back even to kind of the bigger Lance Wallnau conversation of dominion theology, which says that we need to get Christians in the places of power and influence so that we can make top-down changes. and whatnot. I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how the kingdom of God actually works and what we see if we're going to take seriously what we see in the person of Jesus and who Jesus claimed to be. I think the rulership of Christ is not like Caesar's at all. His rule comes from the bottom up, not the top down. His rulership looks like service. His power looks like humble sacrifice. His decrees look like forgiveness. His battle plans look like peaceful nonviolence. The cross is not just the mechanism by which we get our sins forgiven. It's the very enthronement of Christ over the nations. Go read John's gospel. That's very clear. That what, that's one of the major theological things that John is doing. And that this is the very way, this is the way, this is the way that the kingdom of God operates. That the kingdom of God always looks like death and resurrection, like mercy and reconciliation, like forgiveness and sacrifice. I mean, let's just go through a few examples here. When John has his heavenly vision in Revelation 5 and he sees the throne room, what does he see? He sees a slain lamb standing at the right hand of God in the midst of the throne. And it's to him that's given the scroll to rule the nations. Later in Revelation, when Christ is depicted as coming to rule over the nations, this is Revelation 19, how is it depicted? He's riding a horse with a robe that's dipped in his own blood. The battle hasn't started yet and he's already covered in blood because it's his own blood because he's the slain lamb. So he's covered in his own blood of self-sacrifice and forgiveness rather than the blood of his enemies. And the sword that's coming out of his mouth is not the sword of 
imperial or political force or violence, but it's the sword of his word. It's the proclamation of the gospel, that he is the true king, that he is the Lord. And this is eventually what Isaiah even gets to in his prophecy. If you just keep reading past Isaiah 44 and 45, he eventually gets to kind of the high point of one of the servant psalms, behold your king. This is your king. This is the, the good news coming on the mountains. This is your king. Again, in Revelation, when Jesus' followers are seen, how are they depicted? Well, they're depicted just like their king, overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, not loving their own life unto death. And the beast and the beastly empires, we talked about that in the last episode, they're conquered by the way of the Lamb by the way of mercy, by the way of love, by the way of forgiveness, by the way of nonviolent sacrifice. And that's to assume that because we have the quote-unquote truth, because we have Jesus on our side, or because we have the Bible on our side, that that means we should climb to the ladders of power at any cost, politics at any cost, to enforce that truth is simply missing the point of how the kingdom of God operates. If we believe this, if we believe that Jesus' kingdom is just like every other kingdom, and that the way in which transformation and salvation and the work of God and the flourishing of God and the life of God is going to break into America or the world in general is through climbing the political ladder at all costs in order to pass particular pieces of legislation. If we believe that, my friends, we have not yet seen the kingdom of God. Our eyes are still blind. Now, should we stand for righteousness? Yes. But we can't conflate policymaking with the kingdom of God. Sorry, Judge Barrett. We can't conflate laws being passed with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not seen just when particular laws are passed. It's seen whenever kindness is shown to your enemy, whenever mercy is granted to those on the other side and those who have hurt you, whenever retaliation is withheld, whenever blessing is bestowed, whenever friends are won out of enemies. That's the kingdom of God breaking into the world, not in just some ethereal, mystical, fairy tale sense in a very real way. Remember the kingdom in the scriptures, the kingdom comes to the manger, not to the palace. It comes to the poor and not the rich. It comes to the blind and the deaf, not those who can see and hear. It comes in weakness and not in power. It comes by the witness of the church, not by the White House and by the cross, not by Congress, and by the suffering servant, not by the Supreme Court. So to wrap up here, whenever and however you decide to vote, as a believer, however you decide to vote, let's hold fast the confession of our faith that Jesus is Lord. Let's remember that when 
Let's remember that we first and foremost belong to his kingdom. We live under his rule. We pledge allegiance to his throne and we seek to embody the politics of his reign on the earth. Let's remember that God doesn't need to raise up a modern-day Cyrus because he already has raised up his son from the grave and seated him at the right hand of God, high above every other throne, and given him the name that is above every other name. Let's remember that Christ rules over the nations of the earth, not just America, and that God's plans will not be stopped, and therefore we need not live in fear of whoever gets elected. Because no matter who lives in the White House— or who's seated on the Supreme Court. Jesus is Lord. Thank you so much for dropping by today. Stay tuned and make sure you uh, subscribe and and like the podcast. Share it if you found this useful. I, I think these are important conversations to have in our time, in our day. Make sure you subscribe, though, so when the next episode comes, uh, you get notified right away to your phone. And like always in the um, episode info below, there is a link if you want to send an email or a voice memo to me, ask a question, give me some feedback, shoot some ideas my way. I would love to hear from you. You can find all of that below this episode. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time. 